We're so glad to have you here on this Labor Day weekend. Uh, please excuse my voice today. It's a bit weak. I've been fighting off something this week, so I'm not going to speak very loudly. But um, really glad that you're here today. Uh, it seems like every week when you come onto the property here, there's something different going on as the uh, uh, construction continues to unfold before us. Um, everything seems to be right on schedule, too. We hope the classroom building, the discipleship center, as we sometimes call it, will be uh, ready for use at the beginning of October. Um, the only place where we're short on space right now is in our parking. And uh, last week, understand that every spot was filled and some of you had to park uh, in the adjoining neighborhood. We do have permission from West High School to park there, so if you should drive into our parking lot and have trouble finding a spot, know that um, that will soon be resolved. We're gonna have a lot of extra parking, uh, hopefully by the end of September. And in the meantime, we are able to park at West Forsyth and have a nice little walk over to church. A Couple of things I wanna mention before the message today. Next weekend is a really important and exciting weekend for us. It's the weekend we're going to focus on international missions, and a number of our missionaries will be with us next week. Uh, Aaron Chand from India, Jay and Julie Ellis with Wycliffe Bible Translators, uh, John and Christy Nightcamp from Ethiopia, Bill Perot from Colombia, and then uh, special guest speaker Dr. Keith Campbell uh, with Global Scholars on Sunday morning. Friday night, the dinner, 6 to 8, is free. We've got child care. We do ask that you please register so we can be prepared. Uh, you can register online for that. Very, very uh, excited about next weekend. Other thing I want to mention to you is that two weeks from today, September 15th, we're beginning a study on the parables of Jesus called Timeless. And our small group study guide is available today. You can get these at the Resource Center. Uh, five bucks approximately approximately covers the, the cost of those if, if you have that. If not, it's okay to take one. You can use them for individual study as well as group study. There are also tables in the hallway. If you exit the middle doors or the far door here, uh, when you leave the sanctuary, tables in the hallway with uh, small group times available if you are uh, still searching for a small group. Finally, we will celebrate communion today, the Lord's Supper at the end of the message. And after communion, uh, we will invite you, if you have a need for prayer, to one of the six tables, uh, two up front and the four tables in the back. We call these our prayer tables, now that we have a little more space in the sanctuary to, to pray for people. And so after you've been served the Lord's Supper, if you feel like you just need someone to pray for you, I hope you'll make your way to one of those tables. Maybe you just want prayer for kids starting out a new school year. Maybe you're an educator, a teacher yourself. You'd like prayer for uh, the year ahead. Now, this morning, we are concluding our study of the beautiful, short New Testament book of James. We... Um, we began James in July and continued through August, and today what I'd like to do is to kind of take a step back and first look at the big picture of James. So we'll do a bit of review and then focus on the passage that Allison read for us just a moment ago. But um, we called this series on James, True Faith Is, 
because that seems to be the key theme of James, how true, genuine faith should be lived out. I think I said last week, if you were a Bible school student uh, and your textbooks were the various books of the New Testament, on your theology of salvation course, you would probably use the book of Romans. But on your Christian ethics course, you'd probably use the book of James. James is all about how true faith in Jesus Christ should be lived out, should be expressed. Uh, key verses in James are those you see on the screen from James chapter 2. What good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The book of James is a very strong corrective to the person who would say, yeah, I prayed a prayer one time. I believe in Jesus. Uh, I, I'm a Christian. But then lives like the devil and has no fruit. James issues very strong warnings to a person like that, that fruitless faith is not genuine faith. Faith without works is dead. Faith has fruit. True faith shows. Faith is expressed. If the Holy Spirit has come into a person's life and brought that person from spiritual death to life, regenerated that person, and the very Holy Spirit of God has come to dwell with him, how could it be otherwise? And so I'd like to step back and, and review the book of James very briefly and look at nine expressions of saving faith is seen in the book of James. These are things that James is teaching uh, that should accompany our faith in Jesus Christ. Ways he's calling us to live out our faith in Jesus as believers. True saving faith is expressed by, first, steadfastness under trials. In verse 12 of chapter 1 we read, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. True faith holds up through trials. True faith doesn't forsake God when things don't go as we planned or hoped in life. In James 5, he points to the example of Job. He says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now, I'm glad that James points to the example of Job. Because when we look at the, the book of Job, and we see Job's faith, we see that it was anything but perfect. Job's faith at times appeared weak. There were complaints. There were numerous questions to God, perhaps even anger toward God. And the fact is Christians often do go through suffering and do get discouraged, may even doubt God or be angry at times. But ultimately, true genuine faith will last. It will endure. Secondly, true saving faith is expressed by doing the word and not merely hearing. James is echoing the teaching of Jesus here when he says, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. If you're familiar with the Gospels in the New Testament, you may know that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. 
And when the wind blew and the rains came, the floods came, that house, that house withstood because it was built upon a rock. That, Jesus said, is what the person is like who doesn't barely hear my words, but who hears my words and does them. And this is why James is calling us to be doers of the word, not merely hearers of God's message. Thirdly, true saving faith is expressed by caring for orphans and widows. James says true religion, that is religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father, is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. <coughs> Excuse me, James. James gives a very strong call in this book to care for those in need particularly orphans and widows. Included in this is a call to personal holiness, keeping oneself unstained from the world. True saving faith is further expressed by fulfilling the royal law. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. As far as I know, this is the only place in Scripture where the term, the phrase, the royal law is used. And uh, James is saying it refers to Jesus' teaching. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The law of the new covenant. The law of the believer. And believers are called a royal priesthood. A holy nation. And in the context where, in which James is using this reference to the royal law. He's calling Christians to never show favoritism to the rich over the poor. He says, that is a violation of the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Genuine faith in Jesus, he's saying, is to be expressed by <clears throat> loving your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus taught. James again echoes Jesus' teaching when he says, true saving faith is expressed by controlling our words. James teaches in chapter 3 that real spiritual maturity is seen in a person whose words are under control. Jesus said much the same thing. Jesus stressed the importance of our words when he said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Just like you know the nature of a tree by the fruit that it bears, you know what's in a person's heart by the words that come out of their mouths. James is echoing the same teaching. This is the one of the expressions of faith to which believers are called. Our words express the presence of God in our hearts. Number six, true saving faith is expressed by love for God that displaces love for the world. We focused on this last week when we talked about the holy, jealous love of God. And we looked at the fact that in Scripture, often God's relationship with His people in both Old and New Testament is depicted as marriage. And in the Old Testament, God charged the Israelites with spiritual adultery when they worshiped idols. Likewise, James in the New Testament is charging believers with spiritual adultery. If we love this world and its system and its lusts and its cravings and its pride and possessions over love for God. 
we saw the importance of fulfilling the great command of Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And Jesus is the one who said you cannot have two masters. You cannot love God and mammon or money, some translations will say. True saving faith is further expressed by humility before God. James points to the importance of the grace of God in chapter 4 when he says he gives more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's important to understand that James in this letter, this epistle, uh, he's not teaching us work harder, obey all rules, but rather humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Recognize that you need his grace. And to the humble, God freely, gladly gives his grace. You know, we often talk about the grace of God when we talk about our salvation, and we should. The Bible says, by grace are you saved through faith. But faith is not merely God's merciful work in bringing us into eternal salvation. Grace also refers to his enabling power to live out that salvation. I think it was St. Augustine who said, God gives what he demands. In other words, God empowers us to do everything in life he calls us to do. In James' teaching, God places his grace into and upon the life where there is humility, recognition of our need, humbling ourselves before the Lord. Now, we get to number eight, and I'd like to focus on this one just a bit this morning. We're in chapter five now, last chapter of James. True saving faith is expressed by just treatment of the poor and weak. Now, when Allison read that passage earlier, if you were paying attention, it, it sounded much like an Old Testament prophet sounding a warning against the rebellious uh, Israelites for their oppression of other people. It really sounds like a passage that belongs in the Old Testament, doesn't it? Let me read it again. This is New Testament. This is James chapter 5 and verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Wow. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Wow. Strong, strong words. I don't know of any stronger words in the whole New Testament. question I have, the first question that comes to mind, is, is James here speaking to believers or unbelievers? Well, I, I have to think unbelievers because he seems to be pointing to eternal judgment and believers escape eternal judgment through their faith in Jesus Christ as a result of his being our substitute on the cross. However, there were very likely then as today uh, unbelievers 
in the church who thought they were believers but were lacking genuine faith. Only God knows how many people in the United States of America have a mere nominal Christianity and would be those to whom Jesus gave the warning, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And again, this passage is one of the strongest in the New Testament, particularly one of the strongest to rebuke injustices, things like slavery. Now, the words justice, injustice, social justice, those are used so much in our culture today and sometimes have become politicized. I'd like to take just a moment and, and look at uh, the word injustice uh, in the way I, I think the Bible uses it. And I think we could inf define injustice this way. And remember, James is speaking very strongly against it. Abuse of the weak by the strong. Abuse of the poor by the rich. Abuse of the powerless by the powerful. Biblical example of injustice might be King David. King David, walking around on his rooftop one day, he sees a beautiful woman bathing. He has her brought to himself. She's married. She has a husband. But David takes her for himself. She becomes pregnant. David tries to cover it up. He finds out her husband is a faithful, loyal soldier named Uriah in David's own army. He has him killed, deliberately killed in battle to cover this up. He's severely rebuked by Nathan the prophet as a result of this. But what has David done? A terrible injustice to Bathsheba, to her husband, to their family. Why? Because he's king. He had the power. Abuse of the weak by the strong. Abuse of the poor by the rich. Abuse of the powerless by the powerful. Tremendous, tremendous amount of scripture calling God's people to seek justice for the vulnerable, for the weak, for the oppressed. Tremendous amount of scripture. I've just finished in, in the middle of a study on the book of Psalms, and I've really been taken aback by how often in the book of Psalms this is mentioned. But I want to give you just a little sampling, a very small percentage of the total verses that speak to this for God's people. Prophet Isaiah <clears throat> gives these words from God for his people learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. These were the most vulnerable people in their culture. Amos' words are well known from a speech by Dr. Martin Luther King, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The Psalms many times refer to uh, uh, the call of God for his people to give justice to the vulnerable. O oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth might strike terror no more. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. 
Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Did Jesus say anything about this? Well, in Matthew 23, he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, the religious people of the religious. And he says, if he ever commended them for anything, he slightly commended them here when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Well, what does Jesus consider the weightier matters of the law? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These, are, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Passages like this are the reason why Christians have so often throughout the history of the Christian church and should now be doing all we can to defend the rights of the vulnerable, the fatherless, the unborn, the oppressed, the weak, and the enslaved. I was really surprised to learn something this summer. Uh, my wife Beth and I had a chance to go to uh, Colorado for a week to uh, help watch our, our daughter's two very young children, nine months old and three years old. Our daughter and her husband were there for um, a conference of the staff people of CREW. If you're familiar with CREW, Campus Crusade for Christ, ministry to students around the world. So. Um, I went to the meeting the first night with thousands of crew staff, and the keynote speaker was a man named Gary Hogan, who's the founder of uh, International Justice Mission. He is a very well-trained uh, lawyer who began to use his legal skills to help people around the world escape from uh, slavery. And I was shocked to learn that there are an estimated 40 million people today in some form of slavery around the world. Uh, shocking to learn. One of the examples he talked about is, is very well known, and you can read widely about the, the boys on Lake Volta in Ghana, one of the largest man-made lakes in the world, where these kids, extremely young, little kids, we'd call some perhaps even toddlers, taken from their homes with their parents thinking they're getting a good job and, and forced into a life of, uh, a brutal life of fishing for uh, these men who enslave them. This is one of the projects at Compassion International and World Vision and International Justice Mission work to, to write, to right this type of wrong. Gary Hogan tells in his book, Just Courage, of a four-year-old girl, a little girl that we might be you know, shedding a few tears to send off to, to preschool, um, you know, here uh, in our country. He tells the story of a four-year-old little girl named Devi, South Asia, who was taken to labor as a slave in a rice mill seven days a week at four years old. They were able to intervene and rescue 30 people from that particular enslavement. Uh, Sex slavery is, the, to me, the most horrific to hear about, to read about. The thing about it is there's some countries of the world where this is just a very big business. And uh, people fly from all over the world uh, there knowing this. And the victims are so often very young, 
uh, children, very young girls in particular. And um, it's a horrible thing because those who are preyed upon are typically those who the Bible calls Christians to help, the fatherless, uh, the vulnerable, the weak. These are often people whose parents can't provide for them or protect them. Often they're in countries where there's corruption in, uh, in, in the government, and it's very, very challenging for people to come in and, and rescue these folks. You may be wondering, is our church doing anything? What is our church doing to help with situations like this around the world? So I was thinking about our missionaries this week. I realized that many of them are directly involved in the very important prevention side of this. That is preventing young children and the vulnerable from being taken into some type of modern day slavery. And I thought about Bill and Wanda Perot, and Bill will be here this Friday night, I understand, for our, our missions uh, dinner. Bill and Wanda years ago uh, began the Open Arms Foundation in Medellin, Colombia, probably over 30 years ago, rescuing children, young children off the streets uh, who would have otherwise been brutalized in, in uh, horrendous ways. I thought of John and Christy Nightcamp also be here this coming weekend in the youth center in Ethiopia that has had such a tremendous ministry to help bring stability to young men and women and put them on a healthy a trajectory for life. Uh, think of Dr. Rita Browning and Margie Stone. Rita, uh, a pediatrician who trained here in town and started taking short-term trips to Mongolia and seeing the needs of young children who, who were being cast away, particularly special needs kids, and starting a place for them. And then uh, over time, the ministry just grew and grew and grew and, and countless children have been cared for, protected, reached by them. And then the, the ministry that uh, many of you have been to, the, the Challenge Farm in Kenya, probably hundreds of you here, uh, Rick and Sherry Thompson years ago when he was with Peace Corps were in Kenya, they saw the need of these young kids, vulnerable kids. They started the Challenge Farm. Well, many of you, Joe, hundred, uh, hundreds of you probably in our church have been there to work with these children. And, and Madge, I know Dr. Madge Owen, frequent, I couldn't tell you how many trips to Ghana she's taken to help there. And... Uh, praise the Lord that many of you are doing this. But the prevention side is an all-important side. But the fact is 40 million people, roughly, modern-day slavery. Maybe some of you have legal skills, would, would feel a call to uh, participate in this type of work. I understand uh, from one of our members recently that sex slavery is happening here in Forsyth County. Someone in our church, I won't mention their name because I don't have their permission to mention it, mention it but had uh, contacted someone here in town, uh, enslaved. We had to pause right now and just, let's, let's pray for God's intervention in this, shall we? Father, we see what you've called your people to do. We see who you've called your people to be, and we've fallen short. Would you show us as individuals and as a church what we're to do to help the weak, the needy, the vulnerable here in our community around the world? Would you make the opportunities clear? Would you open wide the doors? 
Lord, I want to pray for a solution to the terrible sex slavery in South Asia. I want to pray for a solution to the terrible enslavement of little boys on Lake Volta in Ghana. Lord, stretch out your mighty hand. Raise up your people. Raise up your people with the skills to right these wrongs and give glory to the name of Jesus Christ, the one who is the deliverer, the one who has released us from our slavery to sin, the one who saved us. Let us glorify you in this, Father. Speak to your people this morning. Speak to us, Father. In the name of Jesus. One last point in James. Chapter 5. <clears throat> True saving faith is expressed by turning to God in times of need. James draws his short letter to a close, saying, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. We, we believe in this. We put this into practice here. After your serve communion today, if you are sick and you need prayer, if you'd like to pray for someone else, there'll be folks at the, the four tables in the back. We call those our prayer tables. Now that we've got space to pray for people there, we've got a couple in front. We just invite you, if you have a need for prayer after uh, taking communion, to, to come to one of these uh, for prayer. The, the oil is not magic. It's not medicinal. Oil is simply, in Scripture, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Nobody's going to pour a bottle of oil on your head. Just a, a little drop of oil is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, as we draw to the end of James, I want to raise one question. Is the gospel anywhere in James? Is the gospel seen in James? Because really it just sounds like it's all about these ways faith is expressed and very little about um, what true saving faith is. Uh, James knows that faith in Jesus is required for salvation and he speaks of it in chapter 2 and verse 1 as the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And what he's writing about is how the faith in Jesus should be expressed. And I think he's really speaking of the gospel in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, when he writes these words. So speak and so act is those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Think about that this morning. There's going to be a day of judgment for every human being after Jesus returns. Are you going to be judged under the law of liberty or under the law of sin and death? Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are liberated from the consequences of our sins. I think this statement, law of liberty, 
is a reference to the new covenant that God brought about through Jesus. Because of Jesus, the sinless Son of God, who left heaven to become a human being, because he was willingly crucified for us, he became our sin bearer. He became the Lamb of God slain for our sins. He bore our judgment. He took our place. He liberates us from eternal judgment, and he liberates us into a life in which we're free to obey God through the power of the Holy Spirit so that for us, mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy has triumphed over the judgment we deserved in the suffering of Jesus. So central is the suffering of Jesus on the cross to our salvation that we have been given by the Lord a way to remember and reflect upon it until he returns. And that is in what we call the Lord's Supper, communion. On the screen, you'll see words from the Apostle Paul. We've seen them many times, but they're critically important to understand when we take communion. Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What does he mean by examining ourselves? I think certainly he means to be certain that we don't take communion as a, some mere religious ritual that we do every now and then but that we really understand uh, what Jesus said. When he said, this is my body given for you, my blood shed for you, do this in remembrance of me. That we have by faith received the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross. We have received his salvation. We are holding to, as James would say, the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are under, as James would say, the law of liberty. Mercy has triumphed over judgment for us. Communion is also a time to search our hearts and examine ourselves and, and let God show us if there's somebody we're hating, somebody we're not forgiving, somebody we're resenting. It's a time to let God reorient our hearts in line with his word. And so I'd like to take a moment now for us just to pray. Have a moment of silence, wait on the Lord, invite the Holy Spirit to speak to us. Or would you join me? Father, speak to us now. We pray your Holy Spirit guide us. If there's anyone who's never truly received your salvation, that that one would come to the awareness this morning 
that that salvation is only found in the work of Jesus on the cross. That that person would have faith to receive your gift of eternal life. For those of us who are believers, would you speak to us? Would you guide us in this moment?